Hey, hey everyone, back again. We're gonna continue on with volume two of Capital now, starting with part two. And here I'm gonna cover the first half of part two titled The Turnover of Capital. The next episode, I'm doing the second half of The Turnover of Capital. And then in the, the fourth part that I do here, I'm gonna do uh, the final part of Capital. So here, uh, before jumping into it, if you wanna follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you're new here. What are you doing here? Go and check out the first episode first. But if you happen to be new, uh, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way that make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, go check out my channel. I have like almost 300 videos up there if you're interested in that or it's podcast form or maybe like 250. I don't know, a lot. Uh, and subscribe because I release videos every single week and that's obviously cool. Uh, if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find me on YouTube where I sometimes release videos, which is cool as well. So if you want to help me out, do all those things. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Links for that is in the description. And yeah, let's jump into the first half of part two, the turnover of capital. So the turnover time in capital of any, uh, of any capital is the production time that we covered last week plus the circulation time. So between the time that production starts and that production has gained, uh, has ended in the form of money or in the form of uh, commodity uh, valorized, which has then been put back into production, then the cycle has completed and that has completed one total turnover time. Or in other words, it is the time between the beginning of one cycle to the beginning of the next. So for example, if the turnover time is three months, it takes three months for the capitalists to earn their money back plus the surplus value that they have extracted from workers. Now, in order to proceed by thinking about turnover time, we have to consider the two forms of capital in the circulation process, and that is constant and variable capital. Now, this was a source of a lot of confusion for me because I thought that these two elements of capital, or these two forms of capital, were very easy to understand. Constant capital refers to machines, buildings, anything that you just buy once and then will last a long time. Whereas variable capital is referring to things you have to pay for repeatedly, like labor or like raw materials or something like that. But that is wrong. And this is why. Constant capital which is comprised of machines and buildings to some extent, also includes raw materials, which might seem strange because you have to pay for raw materials a lot. It might seem like a variable thing. The reason that raw materials and is, is on the same plane as machinery or as buildings, both as constant capital, is because both of those things transfer their entire value to the product being made. Now, between them, we can make a distinction between fixed and fluid capital that both still belong to constant capital. So again, to reiterate, we have constant capital and variable capital, and then constant capital can be broken up into either fixed capital, fixed constant capital, or fluid constant capital, which is also might be called circulating constant capital. Now the relationship that these two things have to the final product is going to be different. In order for something to belong to fixed constant capital, like machinery, like buildings, it 
doesn't exhaust itself. It doesn't give its whole um, its whole being into the product. Some of it is going to remain after it has done its job. So a machine is going to only distribute some of its value to the object in the form of its wear and tear, but it's still going to keep working afterwards. Whereas fluid capital or circulating constant capital are those things that completely get used up in order to produce a product. So one of the examples might be for this coal or gasoline or oil, things that are going to have to be bought repeatedly and that transfer their entire self in their being used up into the product and will then need to be paid for repeatedly, hence the circulating part. Now, what is similar between fluid or circulating and fixed capital is that they're transferring their value to the product. It's just that the rate at which that happens between them is different. Now, in the case of variable capital that is referring exclusively to wages, that is referring to the type of capital that not only transfers its value to the product, but copies its value onto the product and some with an additional bit. So when a, a laborer works on a product, they are not being uh, worked to death. Now, I say that with an asterisk, in a lot of cases they are, but at least as far as capitalism presents itself, they aren't going to be worked to, to death. Instead, they're going to be worked to the point that they can transfer their value over, and then some more value can be extracted from them. And then they are going to be given the means through their wages to come back and repeat the cycle over and over and over again. So they don't get totally um, emptied. They don't get completely worn down and then transformed into the product like fixed and like circulating capital do in the form of machines or in the form of raw materials or anything like that. So this is how constant capital is different from variable capital. Constant capital gives itself, transfers its value to the product. Variable capital copies its value to the product and then adds some that the capitalist is able to extract for themselves. So in this grand scheme of things, no given object is naturally going to be either fixed capital or fluid capital or circulating capital or variable capital. And he gives the example of cattle here, where if uh, cattle is used to pl plow the land, it is an example of fixed capital. Whereas if cattle is being used to be fed and then uh, to be slaughtered, it is an example of circulating capital. That is, its use is entirely different, where the cattle is going to not be repeating its same process over and over again with fixed capital. And in it, it's making a product, let's say tilling the soil, taking something from the soil, the cow is going to keep working again. Whereas in the case of it being used for slaughter, as soon as the slaughter is completed, that cow has been transformed into uh, meat. And I'm sorry for the graphic example, but it's the one that it's the one that he uses. And it is the, I, I think it does illustrate the issue fairly well. So there is, there are no things in the world that are just naturally going to belong to any of these different uh, cycles. And the exact same could be said, I believe, of humans, where if humans are used in a certain capacity um, to be worn down to completely nothing, they are going to be transformed into products. Like this would be what was uh, occurring with slavery, where slaves would just be worked until they could not work anymore. And 
then it could be said that they had just transferred their value, like circulating capital, like uh, fluid capital, into the product, and then they are done. And again, this is very grim, but it does reflect the, the reality of the history of exploitation. Now, in the case of uh, cattle, it also shows that duration, so the amount of time, is not going to necessarily determine whether something belongs to fixed capital or circulating capital within constant capital. That is to say that it's going to still take many years to raise uh, a cow to the point of it being ready for uh, to be turned into meat. And again, to the vegans, vegetarians out there, I'm sorry for the example. Now, if you're a clever person and you've been listening to this, and I just said that duration doesn't make a difference, then what that reveals is that the distinction between fixed capital and fluid capital or circulating capital is a spectrum because nothing is going to last forever. Eventually, uh, a machine, eventually the cattle that are used for tilling the soil or plowing the soil are going to be completely worn out. And so in that case, they are uh, they resemble circulating capital in that way. So it's important to think of it as more of a spectrum. And I think that Marx really wants to highlight this, this difficulty here because the uh, political economists before him were completely off base with this. They just thought, um, and we'll get into this more a little later, but Adam Smith thought that what determined uh, circul uh, fluid capital versus fixed capital is whether or not it can change hands. So like a house, for instance, or a building is not going to change hands, whereas like um, seeds used in the, in the soil are going to change hands. So therefore, it's an example of fluid or circulating capital, which is not for Marx the case. Again, the distinction is between how those objects distribute their value and transfer their value to the end product. Now, depending on where you read about this, variable capital might also be distributed or broken into either fixed or circulating variable capital where fixed variable capital is going to be like long-term salaries given to people, whereas uh, circulating variable capital is going to be like salaries, uh, or sorry, wages, sorry, wages for individual people, individual laborers that are probably going to be paid every week, every two weeks, whatever. Now, we don't really get that distinction in Marx, probably because at the time, this thing of like long-term salaries and benefits didn't really exist for laborers. So he may not have had that, uh, that conception. And at that time too, of course, the distinction between capitalists and workers was much clearer. It was very obvious where one was working for a wage and just living essentially hand to mouth while the other was earning a great deal of profit and able to use their money in, in myriad ways, in many different ways. So I'm just putting that out there because it's possible you may read somewhere that variable capital can also be broken up into fixed or circulating capital, but we don't really get that in Marx. I say that, but then I'll go and read the third volume and then he will have explained it there. Who knows? I, I haven't actually read that yet. So if there's a change, I'll definitely correct myself. But anyways, for now. So this distinction between constant and variable capital and within constant capital between fixed and circulating constant capital, this only exists in production. This only exists in production time, not in circulation time, because we don't have production occurring in circulation time. So even though money circulates in circulation time in the market, that doesn't mean it's circulation capital or circulating capital. 
instead Marx says he qualifies this he says that is money in circulation not circulating capital or capital in circulation not circulating capital which he says Adam Smith mixed up Adam Smith associated the actual physical movement of money with circulating capital whereas that's just its uh its existence in the market representing the circulating capital that had occurred in um in the production sphere now the treatment of fixed capital let's say in this case let's say uh machines uh their treatment can happen in a few different ways so as the machine wears down the capitalist wants to essentially have it get worn down to nothing before they change the machine because otherwise if they change the machine too early then there's all that potential it could have done all of that value it could have still uh distributed to the products that it won't be able to anymore and so it is in the capitalist interest to wear it down completely and then when that point comes perhaps they want to buy uh, a completely new machine because let's say in the duration of that machine's life let's say it was 10 years a totally new machine came along the capitalist might say okay now we have to buy this new machine but of course some you know certain factors are going to have to be considered here maybe the new machine is going to be such a radical development that it's going to make more sense for them to uh change their current machines for the new machines just because it'll be uh it'll present such an improvement that they can forget about the lost value of that initial machine and given the whole uh circulation the whole movement of capitalism there are always these examples of lost value value just disappearing through these you know things just being rendered obsolete by developments from some somewhere else which is difficult to account for and to really uh wrap one's head around at least for me so then the capitalists when they have a machine they want to keep the machine working so either they're going to maintain it steadily uh or they're going to just completely change it when it's run out of its uh potential but how does a capitalist actually in the case of like repairs or maintaining the wear and tear of their machines what does that fall under what kind of capital is that because let's say there's uh, a a machine needs to be repaired it can still work but let's say a little part of it breaks off they need to hire a mechanic or a repair person to come and fix it and what that implies is that capital is going to have to be given over to the repair person to fix a machine which was let's assume it was an unpredicted uh an unpredicted break that means they're going to need to dig into their own pockets to cover this and they aren't going to be able to forward that cost onto the consumer because the other capitalist down the road who didn't have the machine break is going to then be able to undersell them be able to undercut them because they didn't have the machine break they didn't have to fork out these costs so to be able to account for these kinds of repairs that they aren't going to be able to really forward over to the consumer the capitalist will have had to have accrued would have had to have accumulated a lot of surplus wealth that they could then uh just dip into and it won't affect their overall wealth or overall capital which they can then use on repairs so besides that the productive use of capital on machinery can occur in other ways besides just you know covering costs of repairs and whatnot maybe capital can be put into a machine to make it run more efficiently maybe uh more machines can be bought and these describe two different kinds of growth where one happens intensively which is to say that the machines are rendered more efficient or it could happen extensively where more machines are added 
and there's kind of a lateral growth of the industry so that maybe maybe more factory is going to be needed, maybe a bigger building in order to account for this growth. Now, these two different possibilities, one where the machines are made more efficient and one where uh, more machines are added, are going to have different effects on the end product in terms of value. Where if machines are made more efficient, that means that the same pool of labor is probably going to be required. The machine just might work faster, in which case you could still have one person operating it, for example. Whereas if you make more machines, you're going to need to hire more laborers to, uh, to cover it. So let's say you have one machine and you found a way to double its efficiency. So instead of making 10 socks a day, it makes 20. Now let's compare that to another capitalist who instead of finding a way to make their machine more efficient, adds a new machine. So now they can produce 10 socks a day twice. So they are producing 20 as well. But the capitalist who is now working with two machines has to hire an extra laborer to cover the cost of this other machine. And this is assuming, of course, so let's assume that the cost to make that first machine more efficient is the same as the cost of buying a whole new machine. It makes more sense for the capitalist to buy, uh, to make the machine more efficient than to buy a whole new machine just because they won't then have to hire another employee to work on that machine. Now, this is completely hypothetical. I don't know how many instances there are where a machine's efficiency can be doubled. But just to bear with me, to illustrate how this is going to have a different effect on value, we can see that there's going to be more value in the second example, where there are now two machines, because now there's more labor being exerted on, these, uh, on the end product. So you have the same end product, but more labor went into it revealing the extent to which that it could then buy more labor ostensibly with what you'll get in the end, uh, the end product. But of course, this capitalist is not going to be able to survive if they are competing with the first one, because the first one is only going to be paying for that one employee working on that one machine. So their base costs are the same. That is, it costs the exact same to double the efficiency as to add another machine in the other industry. But their variable costs are going to be different, where the second capitalist who now has to hire an extra employee is going to have a higher variable costs, which they then have to forward to the consumer in terms of the products being made so that they can cover that cost, which the first capitalist is going to be able to undercut because they're only paying the variable capital on one worker. Anyway, so th there's that dynamic. Uh, then he also says how rent so rent paid by the capitalist to the landowner is uh, would fall under fixed capital. It is what would be immediately forwarded to the, uh, it'll be a forward, forwarded to the product in terms of the cost of rent. So a good capitalist is going to say, okay, it costs me $100 a month for rent. So therefore, I need to make sure that my the cost of my products are going to cover that at the end of every month. So between fluid and fixed capital. So between like buying raw materials like coal or oil versus machinery that you're already going to have or that are that's going to last a long time, what differentiates them is their own individual turnover cycle. So the machine's turnover cycle might be 10 years that you have it for in which it's made thousands and thousands of products. Whereas with, uh, let's say, coal being used, that coal is being burnt up 
and essentially its value always being moving over to the product as it disappears. So there's no coal left over after it has been um, used and its value has been distributed to the product. So we are describing two very different turnover times here, and they're going to require very different attention. Now, in terms of actually developing the machinery that might be around for a long time, let's return to the example of making it more efficient. There is a risk associated here because while it might seem good to make a machine more efficient, it isn't good if there's no demand for what you are making, especially if that thing that you are going to make can uh, is quickly going to deteriorate and then won't be sellable. But even if it does last a long time, as you make more of them, you're going to need more storage for them, which is more costs. And again, like I said from the last episode, you aren't going to be able to forward these costs to the consumer because the time that an object spends in storage or it's sitting on a shelf or in circulation time, it isn't actually uh, accruing more value. Now here, Marx considers the history of this I- these ideas of fixed and circulating capital. So he presents first the physiocrats, specifically the work of uh, Quesnay, and his, uh, I think it's called his Tableau Economique, which, <laughs> economic, which is to say, uh, in that, um, Quesnay describes the distinction between uh, les avances annuelles uh, against les avances primitives. So to translate that, uh, he's describing annual advances versus uh, original advances. Avance primitive is just primitive advances, but he means like original advances going into an industry. So the original advances are going to refer to the fixed capital in which a lot of money was put into to buy uh, machinery, to buy buildings and so on, versus annual advances that need to be spent every year, like on um, like on labor, like on uh, seeds for the soil, like on, um, I don't know, water for the soil, if you need to buy that, you know, just, I think you get it. Now, Marx actually appreciates that Quesnay had this uh, idea in mind. He very much knew, and as many of the physiocrats did, that value is going to be extracted specifically from labor. Now, where the physiocrats went a little wrong is that they believed that value really only comes from one industry, and that is agriculture. The work upon the earth to extract more from the earth, because we all need what comes from the earth. We need food, and food uh, nourishment is the source of real value. So, of course, Marx is like, okay, this is the limitation here, that the physiocrats didn't recognize that the real source of value is actually labor, not just what grows in the earth. So, therefore, they didn't, they couldn't uh, extend their correct idea between les avances primitives uh, against uh, les avances annuelles. They couldn't actually apply that to any other industry, which kind of left them uh, in the dark a little bit. Now along comes Adam Smith, and Adam Smith took these ideas of the physiocrats, thinking that uh, he could just apply them to industry, which is correct, and it's very much what I've said here about Marx. But where Adam Smith goes wrong is that he associates this idea of circulating capital, as I mentioned earlier, with circulation, or the the circulation of capital. So he says that uh, fixed capital is going to refer specifically, or constant capital, to what goes on in like production, whereas circulating capital is going to be what applies to 
the movement of money among merchants and whatnot in which value is going to be really created. And that totally, um, that totally mistakes the origin of value. Value does not originate from the market, as uh, Adam Smith seemed to think, or, or really it doesn't at all. It all originates from real human labor. And Marx is, is, comes out guns blazing here, saying that Adam Smith was just totally, uh, totally uncritical in the application of these terms. At one point, Adam Smith will say, and Marx uses quotes here right from Adam Smith, Adam Smith will say, uh, yeah, fixed capital and circulating capital are part of the same industry. They go hand in hand. And then he'll say in the next sentence, essentially, that fixed capital exists in production, circulating capital in the circulation sphere. And that's it. And Marx is like, well, how do you, that you're contradicting yourself. And it's important to note here, and we find this in very brief moments in Marx's text, but, and I didn't notice it until I wrote a footnote by one of Engels's footnotes, where Engels highlights Marx's real um, opinion of Smith. And his real opinion of Smith was that Smith was kind of a dum-dum. But um, he also, that is, Marx also recognized a lot of value in what Smith offered, specifically in some of its insight about the real origin of value being human labor. Like Smith did acknowledge this, Smith acknowledged surplus value, and everything like that, where uh Marx thinks that Smith went awry was in terms of where, how this value is realized in the market. And then he mistakenly associates that as being a contributing factor to valorization, to the increase of value. Now, in Marx's words, he compares two, he says there are two kinds of Adam Smith, or two, uh, Smith writes in two different ways, or uh, he has two, there are two kind of personalities of Adam Smith. One is the esoteric kind who is actually offering very important insights about this circulation of, of capital, how value is created, and so on. And then there's the exoteric side, who's saying things like uh, capital is the source of, of, of wealth, and that uh, the division of labor somehow uh, is the origin of, uh, of wealth and of, of progress, and that uh, circulation is the root of uh, valorization, or like a very important part of it. So you have these two sides of Adam Smith, and Marx is very much aware that there's a lot to take from Adam Smith, but that it needs to be taken very carefully, because it's very seductive, the things that Adam Smith offers without carefully uh, interrogating them. So one example that Smith gives is the case of copper mining, and Marx picks up on this. So if we follow Smith on his line of thought, that fixed capital occurs in production and circulating capital exists only in the market, he gives the example of mining, and Marx, like I said, Marx picks up on this. So in the case of copper mining, we don't actually have raw materials necessarily going into copper mining. We have workers finding stuff in the ground, They're, you know, in a very simplistic way to think about mining. And what that means then is that not, no value in a strict uh, industrial sense is being transferred to that product. That product is sought out and it already exists. It just needs to be unearthed. So in that example, according to Smith then, because that value is only going to circulate within the, uh, within the economy, then copper mining doesn't actually have any circulating capital applied to it because no, uh, no value is going to be transferred to it. Whereas Marx is very much aware that it doesn't have anything to do with like the physical mobility of the thing and how it's going to attain value in the market. Instead, it is how the thing is procured, 
could be through mining, it could be through production, and how the constituent components of production are going to act differently on that thing's value. So the real human labor is the variable capital that is going to affect the cost of the thing. So if it's a particularly difficult mine to, uh, to mine, then it's going to cost more or the, that, that uh, gold or copper or whatever is going to fetch for more money in the market because of the difficulty presented to the real human labor. And additionally, Smith seemed to think that if an object physically couldn't move, then therefore it was fixed capital, like a house or like machines that were too big to move and, and so on. And there, there are all of these strange misconceptions in Smith's work that Marx just steadily picks through and, and demonstrates how they are untenable. They don't really hold up well to scrutiny. Now, in terms of labor, Smith is interesting because he, on the one hand, acknowledges 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 that labor is a site for variable capital. But he continues the process to say that, well, the only way that this value is going to be realized, that is, in the cost that is paid to them in the form of wages to the laborers, is what they're going to buy to keep them alive. So the real site of the variable capital is not the worker themselves and the labor they put in, but rather the means of subsistence that their variable capital that is forwarded to the worker that that will eventually buy. So the end point is what the variable capital is realized in, and that is the uh, the food. And Marx is like, no, 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 of course. This is totally wrong. It is the labor itself. It is the labor power of the workers and that capital that is applied to covering that, those costs. So now, moving from Adam Smith, uh, Marx takes aim at David Ricardo. And it's funny, in the preface, I don't think I mentioned this last episode, but in the preface, I think it was Engels was mocking the Ricardian school of economics because it doesn't exist. It, it is totally founded on, upon nothing. It did not last at all. And Marx really demonstrates his disdain for this school of economics here. So like Adam Smith, Ricardo mistakenly associated variable capital not with labor power, but instead with uh, instead with the means of subsistence that that labor power is going to have to buy with the variable capital forwarded to them. And likewise, like like Smith, I mean, Ricardo associates fixed capital or makes the distinction between fixed capital and fluid capital a case of how long those things last. How long the machine will last will determine whether or not it's going to be fixed capital versus uh, circulating capital, which is going to, which completely um, dis discounts the the fact that it is actually a matter of how those objects, how those means of production are going to transfer their value onto the product, and as such, Ricardo can't actually fathom the distinction between variable capital and constant capital because he doesn't fully recognize the differences in how they distribute their their value to the product. He doesn't fully acknowledge the difference between uh, how he, real human labor operates on the product versus raw materials versus fixed things like machinery or the, the buildings in use. And now it might seem abrupt, but this is the best place for me to end here on this episode, which is specifically at the end of chapter 11 before chapter 12. And we'll pick up on chapter 12 in the next episode, because the next part is where it gets very tricky, uh, very difficult to navigate. And this is going to begin with chapter 12, the working period. So for those that 
you've listened this far, uh, thanks a lot. If there's anything I excluded or got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, you know, if you want to comment in any way, I definitely recommend that. And uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.